This is OTR Rob. <laughs> I didn't mean to yell at you. I'm terribly sorry. Uh, for some reason, and I don't know why, I'm a whole year off from this Philip Marlowe that I'm going to present to you. And I don't know how I got off the mark, to be honest with you. Because the, the last time I presented Philip Marlowe, it was last year, in December. So I'm off on these episodes, and I don't know why, but I'll get back on track. I'm not usually <laughs> this disorganized, but I will figure it out. In the meantime, you're going to listen to Philip Marlowe from 1945, December 3rd. The episode is entitled Kid on the Corner. <laughs> and I screwed up the date of the episode. It's from 1949, not 1945. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll get my stuff together, I promise. <laughs> and I don't know where I am <laughs> with Mr. and Mrs. North, by the way. So I'm going to throw in an audition show with Peggy Conklin and Gar Eastman in the title role of Mr. and Mrs. North. This was from 1941, a very early episode for Mr. and Mrs. North. And then I have a Michael Shane episode from 1948, from August 20th. And I might be up on this one, too, but the episode is entitled uh, uh, The Gray-Eyed Blonde. So... And that's something else, too. Well, well, let's talk about it next time. But I'm talking about the the new shade that has come into the 21st century, which is now seems to be the normal rate of eye color, and that is the color of gray eyes. When I was a kid, I never saw anybody ever with gray eyes. Today, it's very prevalent. And I want to figure out how and why that'll happen. I think gray eyes is an offshoot of blue eyes where you don't have as much pigment in which you have gray eyes as opposed to blue eyes. And gray is pretty close to the color blue in the spectrum. Just thought I would bring that up. Anyway, this uh, Michael Shane is from 1948, August 20th. And enjoy these and in my confusion, <laughs> I'll see you all back here next week, God willing, and the creeks don't rise. Happy New Year, by the way. Happy 2023. I hope you were safe. I hope you were careful. And I hope you stayed home and enjoyed the New Year, despite not going out. Anyway, come back soon.
get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time it started with a kid hawking papers on Hollywood Boulevard. And moved from there to a house full of hate on a quiet street. A blonde liar on ice skates. And a corpse in a burned-out shack. And it all wound up right where it really began. In the heart of the kid. On the corner. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe. We bring you tonight's exciting story, The Kid on the Corner. After a day jammed full of heat waves in December... Actresses who passed mascara in Long A's office talent. And producers with glossy convertibles and holes in their shoes. The world looked as phony as a $7 bill. And when I finally closed my office, stepped out onto Hollywood Boulevard into the glare from miles of sheet iron Christmas trees on lamppost trunks. And watched a loudspeaker Santa Claus with neon reindeer trundle by in a cloud of artificial snow. I'd have gladly traded all of Hollywood, California for one quiet Vermont hillside thrown my license in to boot. All of which convinced me that what Marlowe needed most was a martini in his own apartment, a good book, and a night's sleep in that order. So I started home after them, but only got as far as the middle of the street. Hey, Mr. Marlowe, wait up. It was the kid who sold papers on the corner. Mr. Marlowe, can you spare a minute? I've got to talk to you. Okay, Tommy. Let's get out of the street first, huh? <laughs> I'm not so good at dodging fenders. Oh, yeah, sure. What's on your mind, kid? That's about my Uncle Bert. Bert Larson. He's gone, Mr. Marlowe. What about your family, Tommy? Don't they know where he is? I don't have no family. I've been living with Uncle Bert in a flat down in Van Ness. Hey, if you haven't had your dinner yet, maybe you'd eat with me in the cafeteria, huh? It's it's real important to me, Mr. Marlowe. Anything that's important to you, kid, is important to me. Let's go in. Oh, swell. I should have known something was wrong when I heard him walking around. Late last night, you know? He said he was after a drink of water, but he's got those metal plates, kind of like caps on his shoes. So I knew he was all dressed, only I was too sleepy to think anything about it then. Well, maybe he just got an early start and he's been busy today, huh? No, it's not like that, Mr. Marlowe. Something's wrong. Well, you have, gentlemen. The pork's nice tonight. Stew's the best deal for the money, Mr. Marlowe. Oh. I'll uh, have the stew, please. Yeah, you better make it two, miss. Okay, a couple of stews coming up. See, when I got up this morning, I found this envelope on the dresser. It was 200 bucks inside, and this was written on the front. Huh? Let's see it. Dear Tommy, must leave town on business. I'll send more money soon. Be a good kid and take care of yourself, Uncle Bert. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. I spent all day trying to find out where he went. I checked everything but the airport. I know he wouldn't take a plane. He gets dizzy just standing on a curb. No luck, though. Milk, Mr. Marlowe? No, I'll have coffee, Tommy. I feel rugged. And there's a table over in the corner. Come on, huh? Okay. What really makes it fishy is that Uncle Bert's got no out-of-town business. Besides, he's never been out in front more than 20 bucks in his life. I can't figure it. Now, look, Tommy, if you're really worried, you don't want me. You ought to go to the police right away. Cops? Yeah. No, I, I can't. Why not? Well, Uncle Bert's been awful good to me, but, well, I guess he's really kind of a bum. 
You see, he's a gambler, Mr. Marlowe, a bookie. Yeah. Just a harmless small time, sure, but I'd get him in an awful jam if I called the cops. Will you try to find him for me? I got dough. I'll pay you whatever you charge. Don't worry about the money, Tommy. I got one lead for you. This name here in the back of the envelope. See? Yeah. Lester Carney. And the number 3,004 and a half. Does that mean anything to you, kid? No. Oh. I'd have looked that guy up myself, only you know how far a kid could get. Sure. Gee, Mr. Marlowe, I'm sure my uncle didn't leave town. It's something else. It's gotta be. He's in some kind of trouble. Now, Tommy, you know that he might be on the wrong end of it, don't you? Yeah. Well, if that's right, I, I want to find it out fast, Mr. Marlowe. Here's a picture of him. Mm-hmm. Scared, son? Me scared? Nah. Not for myself, anyway. I... Yeah. Yeah, I... Yes, I am, kinda. Well, okay, Tommy, eat your dinner and get back to work. I'll see what I can find out, huh? I patted my new client on the shoulder and left the cafeteria. But I was sure of one thing. The dry rot that gets to most people in Hollywood wouldn't touch a hard-working kid named Tommy Lawson. Who was already smarter at 15 than a lot of citizens get at 50. I stopped in a phone booth and found the name Lester Carney listed in the book at 8110 Cherokee Street. That turned out to be an oversized California Spanish model with it, taking lots of old-fashioned wealth to build. Halfway up the curving walk to the already open front door, I heard the voices. All right, Susan, if that's the way you feel, I don't want you in the house another night. Well, I'm sorry, Mom, but I don't think it's fine and fine lines are a part of the maid's duties, so I need them. But I would like to know about my back salary first. You'll Mrs. come get your back salary, my girl. Don't worry about that. Now, get out. Very well, Mom. Excuse me, sir. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, what do you want? I'm looking for Mr. Lester Carney. Is he in? He is not. Oh, uh, would you mind telling me where I can locate him? I don't know. And I don't care uh, anymore. Just a minute, just a minute. Is he with Bert Lawson, maybe? I don't know what you're talking about. Now, get out of here. And good night to you, too, Mrs. Carney. Hey. Hey, Susan. Just a minute, baby. Who are you calling, baby? Well, I call anybody baby when they're as cute as you are. <laughs> You're not so bad yourself. Well, ah, now that that's established, let's get friendly. I'm always friendly. But they're not, huh? Oh, there's going to be trouble in that house. Oh? Well, good night, Mr. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll give you a lift in the car. <laughs> Let me have your bag. Well, all right. Thank you. Ah. Say, uh, what about that trouble you spoke of, Susan? What did you mean? Julia. She isn't as pretty as she used to be. She's turned around sick. She's driven that poor husband of hers out of his mind. He almost never comes home nowadays. Practically lives in his studio. Studio? Uh, what kind? Photography. Uh. It's way up in the Hollywood Hills someplace. Susan, did you ever hear either of them mention of Bert Lawson? No. Why, who's he? A gambler. I gather from Julia that Connie's blowing the family fortune. Eh? Sure he is. And that's not all she's driven him to. No. What else? What do you think? Another woman, of course. Oh. An ice skater named Carol King at the Igloo. That's that nightclub with the skating show. Yeah, I've been there. Does Mrs. Carney know? Oh, she suspects. That's why she wants me to spy on him. But I wouldn't because I don't blame him one bit. Not with Julia being like she is. Yeah, maybe you're right, Susan. Then again, maybe you've got your cause and effect backward, huh? Yes. I don't know anything about that. That poor man's been driven so crazy, he's threatened to kill her. Well, here's where I get out. And stay out. 
dropped Susan off at the car stop and headed out Sunset Boulevard to the westward in a club called the Igloo, which looked more like a down-at-the-heel Taj Mahal than an Eskimo's bedroom. Inside a line of fast-moving ostrich plumes with rye crisp waistlines and imitation sable zipped over a short sheet of tinted ice toward the climax of chorus numbers. While I bluffed my way backstage and intimidated the call boy into sending over one Carol King. She turned out to be left end in the lineup out front, so I sat down on a cold trunk and waited until the curtain fell. And I got up to greet an athletic blonde with more than healthy face, who sidled dubiously toward me, ice skates and all, and I introduced myself and told her I was looking for Bert Larson. Why are you looking for Bert Larson, Marlo? Well, because people say he's disappeared. Now, I know he's a bookie. You don't have to protect him on that score, and I'm no cop. Just want to know where he's gone. Okay. Here he made a real killing yesterday, the first one in his life. Oh. I understand he's leaving town to retire. Hmm. Who's going to make book for you from now on? Nobody. I never play the horses. My friends do. Oh, friends like Lester Carney? Lester. Oh, well, now we get down to business. You smell like you're working for a wife, Shamus. Yes, again, sugar. I'm after Bert Larson, nothing else. That's why I want to talk to your friend. Where is he? Lester Carney is no friend of mine. You know, you should be smart enough to know you're just wasting your time with that pitch. Look, bud, he was my friend, sure, but that's all off, as of an hour ago. They're all true, washed up. I gave him the boot. Why, did he run out of blank checks? I ought to bust your shin ah, wide open for that. Keep those skates on the floor, honey. Then skip the cracks. I threw him out because I got sick and tired of waiting. He kept me on the string for months with nothing but promises. Said he hated his wife, but when it comes down to cases, he refused to leave her. Why? I don't know got some hold over him and he has nerve enough to break. So I wrapped him up in a neat little bundle and sent him home. It was a mess. I'll bet. Between you and Julia, he must be in a great frame of mind tonight. That's his problem now, brother, not mine. What is yours? How to keep your life on ice? No, wise guy. For your information, I'm quitting this show. I'm going to make a clean break all along. Happy landings. But look, what's the connection, if any, between Lawson and Carney? Why, Mr. Marlowe, I have no, no idea. idea. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, sugar, that's where we'll leave it for now. But in making that clean break, be sure it's not your neck. I'll see you around. I had nothing tangible to base it on, but as I left the igloo and drove back to Hollywood for some reason, I kept thinking that Tommy Larson was right, that his uncle was still in town and in some kind of trouble. I was sure that at least half of Carol King's story had been lies, but why, I couldn't forget. And another idea hit me, and hit me hard. I turned on to Cherokee again and drove up to Carney's house at 8110 Park and went in. There the vague hunch began to shape up my grim fact because the front door was wide open and spilling a pale glow from the one light in the house, the hall lamp. I saw the note propped under the lamp even before I went in. I left it where it was. It said to whom it may concern. I have paid all my just debts, my affairs are in order, and since life has been made intolerable for me, I have destroyed that which made it so, my wife, Julia. Now there's nothing left that shall dispose of myself, nor am I sorry, bless the cop. I looked up beyond the note and saw her lying at the edge of the circle of light from the lamp. Julia had been strangled by a silk cord that was still embedded in her swollen throat. I turned and started for the phone. There we are. Oh. I got here a little too late, huh? Or is it too soon? My wife's dead. What's the difference? Better stand still because I'll shoot fast. Who are you and what are you doing here? Name's Marlowe, and I assume you're Connie. 
All right, I'm a private detective trying to find Bert Lawson. In the process, I got mixed up in your little fiasco from one end to the other. Bert Larson. Just a cheap bookmaker. He's one of the very few people who ever gave me a fair break. Where is he, Connie? Do you know? No. Does it matter? Too bad you bunted into this now. The man's going to do what I've decided to do. It's the most personal, private affair. It's your party. Maybe you better think it all over again. Huh? I've already thought it over. Thoroughly. Turn around and walk through that door to the kitchen. Go on. Sure, sure. All right. Stop there. Now, open that door on your right. This one? Yes. Years ago, that cellar was filled with the best wines the world had to offer. What happens? You pull too many corks? Find out for yourself, Marlowe! <laughs> Just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, will Tyrone Power listen to Jack Benny's siren song? Will Ty consent to portray CBS's great Sunday night musician and lover in the movie The Life of Jack Benny? Tune in tomorrow and find out. No, there's never a question about the quality and quantity of comedy and sheer entertainment on CBS on Sunday night. And remember, the Jack Benny show is heard on all of these CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Kid on the Corner. Lester Carney, bouncing the private detective down the cellar stairs, had been rough on both the inner and outer man and my jaw was bleeding where his heavy signet ring had connected I was back on my feet through the dusty jumble of barrels and boxes over to a grimy side window and finally out onto the street. I found neither confessed killer nor car any place in sight, which made my next step a return trip into the house and a call to Lieutenant Matthews. All right, Marlon. From your client to Julia Carney to that ice skater and back to Julia Carney, now dead, I follow. But the why, I don't. Where's the connection between the newsboy's uncle and this guy you say is on the way out? This, uh... Lester uh, Carney, Matthews, yeah. I don't know. You don't know, you're not saying which, Phil. Well, maybe it's a little of each. Now, look, Lieutenant, I... Just a second. What is it, Marlo? All the wire, will you, Matthews? Okay, but make it snappy, will you, Phil? Killer on the loose isn't such a good idea, if he's promising up so forth. Might decide to take somebody else along, 3, you know. 3,004 and a half, North Lost Moon. 3,004 and a half. I can't hear you, Phil. What? What? Oh, a, a piece of paper, Matthews, in a dead woman's hand. Oh, now you're fine. It's got an address on it. The same address that was on the back of the envelope Tommy's uncle left for him. Well, this address could be the connection I asked you about. Yeah. Yeah, the hook between Uncle Bert and the Connies. Well, we'll get right over there. We'll hey, Matthews, wait a minute. Let me try it alone first, will you? I, I think it's it'll play better that way. And keep the kid's uncle out of the police lineup that yeah. way. Yeah. Uh-uh, I can't. Oh, now, wait a minute, Matthews, please. I'm thinking of the kid. Yeah, well, I... Okay. boy. Just don't make it too long till I hear from you again. Goodbye. I knew that the 3,000 block on North Rossmore wasn't even close to the Hollywood Hills, which meant that the address couldn't be the dilettante photographer's studio that the Carney's ex-mate had described. And 20 minutes later, when I was out of my car and standing next to the doorbell marked 3,004 and a half, I knew something else. Because the name underneath was Carol King. 
A light showed from someplace deep inside, and my leaning on the doorbell only proved that it worked. There was no answer at 3,004 and a half, but 3,004, the other twin to the duplex, was different. It featured a sweet old lady who shattered the illusion the second she opened her mouth. I suppose you're just another one of that king girl's friends, eh? Why, do I look the type, Granny? There is no type, young man. Miss Carol King entertains all sorts. Oh, which might include a recent someone who's gray at the temple's short and maybe talks a lot about the ponies. Huh? How would I know what her guests talk about? Oh, you've got to be kidding. Look, honey, a woman's been murdered tonight. That murdered? Uh, I knew it. I knew it. No, she had to come to a bad wait end. A minute, only yesterday, oh, I told him... Hold it, that hold it, her... Granny. Carol is not the one who's dead. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Sticks out all over you. Now, look, what about that man? Well, he was here about 30 minutes ago, just the two of them, drinking that hard liquor like it was water and making enough noise to raise the devil itself. Farewell party, they called it. Oh. Did you see him leave? No, no. Henry made me come in then, and I... Well, I mean, but... yeah, I know what you mean. You missed it. Okay, Granny. Now, look, how do we get in here without kicking the door down? Come on, sweetheart. It's important. There may be a body inside. Uh, a body? Oh, well, how awful. Here, here. Over here, behind this ledge. That's better. You always kept a spare key. Yes? Yes, here it is. Uh, you do it. I'm too shaky. You shouldn't be. I was thinking tomorrow, Granny, and the news you'll have for one and all. The light switches. is on your right there. Uh-huh. See anything? No. How many rooms here? Bedroom, kitchen, and bath, aside from this. Anything in there? No. You suspect foul play, all right, don't you? The foulest. Don't let it worry you, because... Hey, those photos there on the wall. They're taken from Mulholland Drive, aren't they? One by day, one by night, both in the same spot, the Hollywood Hills? Sure, sure. That's where he has a studio, that Lester fellow. Yeah, that Lester fellow. Granny, do you know where it is? I mean, Mulholland Drive and where? You know, that street runs for miles along the top of the mountain. Well, of course I do. I was born and raised here in Los Angeles. Granny, where? Mulholland and where? Mulholland, Laurel Canyon Boulevard, just ah. south of the intersection. Thank you, sweetheart, and goodbye. Oh, wait, one moment now, if you please. What's the matter? What's your name, officer? I know my rights. Your name and your division. Granny, dear, I'm no cop. Huh? I said I'm no cop. Oh, not a police officer. Well, then who are you? Just a passerby. A stranger in the night. Good night, Granny. All the way from Rossmore to Sunset, then west to Laurel Canyon Boulevard, I kept worrying about Tommy Lawson and the uncle who, from where I stood, needed at least worrying about no matter which way things played. But when I was on the strip of macadam that twists its way upward toward Mulholland Drive like a snake writhing from a long, long bellyache, I forgot about both client and relatives alike. Because at the top and a little to the south, where Granny had said it would be, was Lester Carney's studio, all right. But burned to the ground. Well, he's select language points. You'll go fast, Archie. Yeah, it wasn't 20 minutes on this one. Hey, mister, where are you going? Some of that metal stuff's still pretty hot. Who are you, with the law? No, Chief, I'm a private detective named Marlowe. I was wondering if Lester Carney was caught in there. He owned this shack. Yeah, I know. Is your friend of yours? Uh, no, it's strictly business. He's wanted for murder. Yeah, he was wanted for murder, Phil. He was burned to a crisp in there. Hello, Casey. Hello, Matthews. Well, what's your guess? He started on purpose? No, suicides hardly ever burn themselves to death. No, no. He probably took some sleeping pills or poison and then a cigarette he left going did this, you know? Hey, by the way, Phil, you saw Connie tonight. You think you might recognize him? Might. Yeah, he's over there. 
There isn't much. Oh, see you, Casey. Right, Matthews. Hey, Garson. Hey, you tied Connie and this fire together kind of fast, didn't you, Lieutenant? I just found out about this place. Yeah, but you work alone, Marlowe. I got help. Oh. Oh, there it is. All that's left. See anything? Yeah. That ring. I noticed it earlier uh-huh. tonight. And the watch? No, I'm not sure. I don't remember what kind of... Hey, Matthews. What is it? What are you staring at, Phil? Come on over here. Come yeah, on. What? See this little piece of metal? Yeah. I think it's... Oh, don't watch, old Phil. Uh, you know, fire makes things hot. Yeah, yeah. Hot things burn and... Yeah. Marlo, what is it? It's an idea. Yeah, like what? Like this isn't suicide after all, like it's murder, Matthews. Oh. Come on, we gotta get to our phone quick. <laughs> Uh, look, miss, this is important. I'm calling for Detective Lieutenant Matthews at police headquarters. What passenger flights have left in the last half hour? Passenger flights? Yeah. Well, there have been two, sir. One to Dallas, Texas, and the other to Chicago. Uh, both American Airlines. Nothing out of the country? Well, what are you getting? Will you, you wait know, a minute, Matthews? Sir, however, there is a flight scheduled to leave at 1010. Uh-huh. That's just five minutes from now. Uh, that's going to Manila. Mm. Mercury Airways. Shall I connect you? Yeah, hurry, will you please? Yes, hey, Matthews, sir. that's maybe it. I'm glad for you. Mercury Airways. Central Dispatcher's Office, Mercury. There's a call from the police here for you. Uh, go ahead, sir. Look, your 1010 flight from Manila, is it going out on schedule? Uh, yes, sir. The plane's standing by for the Tossieville now. Oh, then tell me this. Is there a passenger aboard named Bert Lawson? Uh, One Mr. moment, Killer please, Killer? sir. Hurry, will you? This Larson killed Lester Connie. Then he's Will you the hold it, Matthews? Back. Yes, sir. We have a bird Larson aboard. Oh, good. Keep him there and don't let that plane get up in the air. Do you hear? The man's wanted for murder. But don't do anything else either. Just let him sit and wait for us. You got that? Uh, yes, sir. I understand. Fine. We'll be there as soon as we can. Goodbye. Come on, Matthews. It's your show from here on in. Sirens included. <laughs> something, Matthews? Yeah, yeah, I'm saying I don't know which end is up, Phil. Look, Lester Connie killed his wife, right? Right. Why? Because he wanted her out of the way so that he and a cheap little monster named Carol King can live happily ever after. Oh, divorce wouldn't do that for him, huh? No, Moody! No, I don't think so. Probably because Julia Connie had a real tight grip on the purse strings. Oh. Maybe something more, like it's not very nice pass for a guest. Yeah, yeah, but the purse strings, the money, that's where Bert Lawson figures in, huh? A bookie with a claim. No, no, blackmail. Now, I figure Bert Lawson knew about Connie and Carol King. He must have stopped by once to pick up or pay off a bet at the right time. Yeah, and from there, what? And from there, the team of Carol and Lester kill Lester's wife. Yeah, which we've covered. But not in detail. Now, listen. You see, after the murder, Lester planned to kill himself. Yeah. Or at least make it look like that. Yeah. A suicide note from Mulholland Studio burned down the works. Yeah, yeah, and the body we found... That's an added attraction. Bert Lawson included in the last minute. What? The white man and the black bailer? Ah, you're getting it. Drugged while drinking at Carol's, where he thought that he was going to get paid off in money, then up to Mulholland Drive, ring watch, and flames added. Oh, and then then out here at the airport headed for Manila. Lester Carney. Uh Uh-huh. Hey, Mooney... We're getting close. You better kill the siren. Okay, Marla. Now, Phil, how do you know all this? I mean, the switch. You know, what makes it so? That piece of metal I burned my fingers on, Matthews, yeah. it was a tap from a shoe. And Bert Lawson wore taps. 
the rest of it adds from there. Yeah, including Connie at the airport now as lost. Sure, who'd be looking for a beat-up second-rate bookie who decided to leave town? Aside from a nephew, that is. Yeah, aside from a nephew who tried every place but the airport. Uncle Bert couldn't stand planes. The brakes, Matthews. Oh, here we are. Yeah, just you and me and Mooney and the killer. Aren't you coming, Phil? Uh, no, I think I'll wait here, Matthews. I, I, I got some thinking to do. About the scum you sometimes meet in the night? No. About the kind of a kid I almost never meet in the night. See you. Yeah. All right, come on, Mooney. Maybe our boy will make a break for it, I hope. Lester Connie didn't make a break for it, and an hour later when they picked up Carol King, it was the same thing. Each of them was surly, ugly, but they talked. So when I finally left police headquarters, where try as he would for Tommy's sake, Matthews had found it impossible to skip over Bert Larson's connection as a blackmailer. It was pushing midnight, and I was dog-tired. There was something worse than that when I was back on the corner near my office, walking toward Tommy Larson, who was untying a stack of fresh newspapers. But then the headline. Read all about it. Hollywood killer nab. Blackmailing bookie. Jealous wife slain. Hiya, kid. Hiya, Mr. Marlowe. Lieutenant Matthews tells me you had kind of a rough night. Kind of? When would you talk to him, Tommy? After the first edition hit the street, I I wanted to know if you were okay. The story didn't say. Pub, publicity no good for your business, huh? Not much. Look, kid, did the lieutenant say anything about you? I mean... Oh, uh... I'm gonna... It was a neighbor. Friend of Uncle Bert's. Uh... He had friends, you know. He wasn't really bad at heart, Mr. Marlowe. Not really. I, I believe that. So do I, Tommy. He was just mixed up. Yeah. Sure he was. And you know why? The way he thought the world owed him a living, that's why. I couldn't tell him otherwise. He... Excuse me, Mr. Marlowe. I, I gotta get going. Thanks a lot. You were swell. Sure. Extra, extra, Bookie and Babe slain in Hollywood Triangle. Two dead in Hollywood slain. Extra, extra, extra. There's nothing more pathetic than a kid. First time he's really slapped down by life. We, the older ones, the tired ones, learn to roll with a punch. Because we've got time in our corner, watching us, counseling us, teaching us how to save ourselves, so that the final gong we're still on our feet. But a kid... Kid steps into life's arena expecting to find his opponents all he was taught to believe they would be. But instead, he finds the old one-two below the belt. But if here he finds a good guy, and there a great girl, the going suddenly becomes not so bad. The fight becomes worth it. If only to help the next generation of Tommies 
find their ring a little cleaner. And the brakes not quite so tough. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Gil Stratton, Jr., Virginia Gregg, Wilms Herbert, Joan Banks, and Vivi Janis. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dubkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Oran. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with laughter on a bright morning, in a battle over a chicken, and got better as it went along. It could have lasted a lifetime, but it didn't. It stopped on a gray morning, with a little wishbone broken. Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. like to introduce you to Mr. and Mrs. North. And welcome to this new series of programs, which each week at this time will present America's most attractive young couple, Mr. and Mrs. North, starring Peggy Conklin in the role she created on the Broadway stage with Carl Eastman as Mr. North. In the neighborhood where Pam and Jerry North live, they're known as that delightful, though slightly delirious duo. To Mr. Robinson, the grocer, there's no customer whom he'd rather wait on than Pamela North, even though she occasionally pays her bill with an unsigned check. Over at the Dodson Publishing Company, Jerry North, rising young editor, not only discusses Eugene O'Neill with the president, but also Dick Tracy with the office boys. In short, Pam and Jerry will often amuse you, sometimes confuse you, but will certainly never bore you. As our story opens, it's early Sunday morning. So now, let's meet Mr. and Mrs. North. Jerry, dear. 
scary. <sighs> Wake up. What's the matter? What time is it? It's 8.30. You've already mm. slept 12 hours. You want to spend the whole day in bed? Uh, yeah. Oh. Jerry. Jerry, please wake up. You're spoiling all my plans. Uh, plans? What plans? For the picnic, dear. You know, the picnic. Oh, yes, dear. We'll talk about it in the morning. <laughs> Good night, dear. Jerry. Jerry, come on now and get up. Get up. Pam, don't pull the covers off. I'm cold. But it's warm, dear, for the picnic. It's a beautiful day out. Well, how can I tell? Pull the shades up. Darling, the shades are up. Oh, Pam, go to bed. It's a horrible day. The worst day of the year. But it's going to be nice. I can tell. All right. Give me the phone. What are you going to do? Hello, operator. Give me the weather bureau. Isn't that silly, Jerry? I just finished telling Hello, you... Hello, weather that... bureau. What are you planning for today? <laughs> Clouding? Followed by rain and colder. Would you recommend a picnic? Well, you wouldn't? Thanks very much. Jerry, that's perfectly ridiculous. You know they have a little man down there with rheumatism. And every time it hurts him, they say it's going to rain. Now hurry and take your shower, dear. I've got your gray suit all laid out in the dressing room. Darling, I'm not going to wear my best suit to a picnic. Especially a rainy picnic. I'll just get my brown tweed, huh? Oh, not that old, ugly brown tweed. You don't seem to understand. The material was woven by hand. That suit comes from London. Yes, but we don't have as many fogs over here, dear, and people will see you in it. <laughs> now, hurry, Jerry, come on. By the way, Dr. Livingston, who's making this trip with us? Well, I haven't invited anyone yet, but I thought I'd call Herb and Kate, the Fleming, and Charlie and Jean, and, oh, yes, darling, that French fellow, Pierre Dubois. He's charming. Charming. Well, that settles it. Count me out. Now, dear, it's so silly of you to get angry every time Pierre kisses my hand. Well, I don't mind him kissing your hand, but I do get so when he starts biting your nails. <laughs> Jerry, you do love me, don't you? Yes, I suppose so. Oh, say you do. All right, I... I love you. And I love you, too. Now, put on your gray suit, dear. I'm telling you right now, if Pierre Dubois... But I'm only inviting him for your sake. He can gather wood and make the fire. And besides, he knows all about the birds and the flowers. Really? Do you think his mother should have told him? Ma'am, how do you expect me to wash my face if your stockings are in the sink? Well, take a hot tub, dear. Go soak yourself. I can't. Your girdle's in there. Just a minute, Jerry. Hello? Mr. Moscone? This is Mrs. North. Who are you talking to, dear? Mr. Moscone, the butcher. Hello, Mr. Moscone. I wonder whether you'd do me a big favor. Could you come over here right away? Ma'am, it's Sunday. Oh, Jerry, I know. What's that? You will come over? Oh, Mr. Moscone, you are the nicest butcher. Oh, yes, you are. Bye. I think that's an imposition, Pam. Why should he come over here on Sunday? Well, that's all right, Jerry. He won't mind. I know. Wait a minute. What do you mean, you know? Well, I've done some favors for him. Now, what kind of favors can you do for a butcher besides buying meatballs from him? <laughs> oh, dear, you say such amusing things. But you'll feel better when you get out in the hot sun. Incidentally, while you were having coffee, I made the calls, and everybody will meet here in a few hours, about noon. Oh, there's a doorbell, Pam. You'll have to answer it. I'm not dressed. Well, it couldn't be Mr. Marconi. 
Are you expecting anyone? Now, you know I'm not. I don't understand why I can't sleep on Sunday morning. Other men do. Do you really think I should answer it, Jerry? After all, it's so early and people shouldn't come calling in. Well, I guess nobody's home, Ellen. That's funny. This is the 21st, isn't it? Yes, Ellen. Are you sure this is the right address? It says North on the bell here. Well, maybe you misunderstood the invitation. Just when is brunch served? Brunch is a combination of breakfast and lunch, I think. And I distinctly remember, just as we were leaving Charlie Henry's the other night, Mrs. North said, come early. Because Mr. North doesn't like to sleep late on Sunday morning. Well, I'll ring once more and see what happens. Good morning. Hello, Mrs. North. Oh, good good morning, Ellen and Harold. How nice of you to drop by. Won't you come in? Yes, thank Thanks. you. Oh, it's uh, rather drizzly out. Our raincoats are a little damp. Well, here, let me have them. We'll hang them right here in the hall. Oh, fine. That's right. it. Now, come right in here in the living room. Just make yourself comfortable for a while. My, what a lovely room. Oh, it's so charming. And all those books. Well, there must be over a thousand. A thousand and three. Martha, that's our maid, counted them last Thursday. She didn't have much to do. Uh, wait till I call Mr. North. He's still in his robe. Oh, uh, Jerry. Jerry, you remember Ellen and Harold, don't you? Ellen and Harold who? Oh, I beg your pardon. How do you do, Helen and Harold? Awful out, isn't it? No, dear. Ellen and Harold. You remember Charlie Henry's the other night? Oh, yes. A nice party, wasn't it? it certainly was. It's well meeting you, Mrs. North. Uh, Mr. North. Oh, you can call me Pam and call Jerry Derry. Uh, tell me, Ellen, do you often take walks around here on Sunday morning? We always do. Oh, no, we never walk in Greenwich Village. We always do our walking in the Bronx. In the Bronx? Really? Yes, that's where we live. Well, my old boys used to live up there. Uh, Johnson, I think his name is. Uh, you two been married long? Six months. No, his name is Mallory. Yeah. Uh, any children? Jerry. <laughs> You'd better go in and get dressed, dear. Our guests will be here soon. We're having guests, you know, Ellen. Why, yes, we sort of expected you would. Oh, did you? Well, dear, I'll go in and help you find your socks. Well, oh, you don't have to. They're in the top drawer of the dresser. Martha and I moved them yesterday. House cleaning. We vacuumed everything. You vacuumed all the socks, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse us, will you, for a moment? Mm -hmm. Sure, of course. Just make yourself comfortable. There's some cigars and peanut brittle over there. Be right back. All right, Pam, what's the socks mystery about? Jerry, why did you invite those people here? Why did I invite them? Now, listen, you figure out who they are and then get in touch with me. I'm going to get dressed. <laughs> By the way, where is that brown tweed suit? Have you seen it? But I thought you invited them here. I don't Pam, mean... didn't I wear that suit two weeks ago? I'm sure I put it in this closet. Funny. I knew their names and their faces. Now, who in the world is that? Well, that must be Mr. Marconi. Now, darling, you stay here and I'll take care of everything. Wait a minute, Sam. I haven't found that ground sweet. Oh, dear, what a minute. Oh, hello, Harold and Ellen. Hello. Uh, somebody at the door will be right back and then we'll have a nice short talk. Ah, good morning, Mrs. Ennard. Now, how's everything? Oh, come in, Mr. Go into the living room. Uh, shoes. Uh, I'd like to tell you, Mrs. Nora, how awfully nice of you to come over on Sunday. If you would do something for me, I'd do something for you. It'll work for half a half. 50-50. Uh, what you got? Uh, you see? Uh, pardon me, Mr. Nora. 
Pardon me, this is Mr. and Mrs. Adams, Mr. Marconi. How do you do? How do you do? I'm pleased to meet you. This is Mrs. Norton. She's a wonderful woman, no? Uh, yes. You know what she's going to do for me? Something at the school marvel. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Marconi. Now, about this thing. Mrs. Norton. My wife would say. My kids would say. Wants to tell you appreciate Say, Pam, I can't find that brown suit. Now, where in the world Mrs. is... Mrs. Norton. Oh, hello, Mr. Marconi. Mrs. Norton. I'm going to try to tell you wife a tangy. Thank you. What for? What for? Because she's giving me this Abrahma suite of suit. Albert, we've been in this bedroom for ten minutes and you haven't made any sense yet. Why did you give my brown tweed suit to Mr. Moscone? Chris. Chris. What is Chris? Chris who? Oh, dear, don't be then. You know I'm talking about the Airedale I used to have. His name was Prince, and his coat was just the color of that suit. One day, Prince died, and I was so unhappy I couldn't eat for a week. Well? Well, every time you wore that brown tweed, it all came back to me. And I lost my appetite. For a week? Sometimes longer. Pam, I'm going to count ten. And when I'm finished, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> dear, dear, you're so whimsical. But I'm glad it's settled once and for all it bothered me a little. Well, let's go out and tell Mr. Marconi about the picnic steak, shall we? All right, Prince. Miss Norris, I want to ask you Well, look, let's get right to the point, ma'am. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Marconi. Uh, yes, Mr. Uh, you see, we're having guests today. I told you that, didn't I, Ellen? And we wondered if you could get us six nice, juicy steaks. Well, nobody else, Mrs. Norris. But for you, it's special. I open up at the shop on a Sunday. I got it a piece of sirloin. It's an alien in your mouth like a hunk of porterhouse. Why don't you give us the porterhouse? The sirloin is a better. You wait here. I come back before you can say something. Like a Dominique. Gee, Mrs. Norris. Your butcher certainly is obliging. He should be. He's wearing my best suit. Oh, darling, let's not start that again. It might be your favorite suit, but you know how I hate it. We don't have that trouble. Harold's best suit is his only suit. Look here, Harold. You're not a communist, are you? No, I'm an architect. I design houses if somebody will let me design a house. Houses? Oh, Jerry, don't you want me to help you pick out your tie to match your thoughts? To match my tie? Here we go again. Excuse us, Harold and Ellen, uh, just for a moment. Yes, just keep right on with that peanut brittle. We don't want to spoil our appetite. Well, uh, smoke the cigars, then. Well, I'm prepared for anything and hoping against the worst. What is it now? Something terrible. I forgot that I invited Harold and Ellen to brunch this morning. Oh, that's not so terrible. They can come to the picnic. Yes, I know, but you see, I also invited eight other very nice people, including Mr. and Mrs. Willoughby. Mr. Willoughby? You mean that writer from Texas, the friend's been trying to get under contract for the last four months? Oh, Pam, why did you do this? He hates people. He hates crowds. This is going to cost me the biggest contract of my career. Well, I thought that you could close the deal over a nice, quiet brunch. Quiet brunch. And that's why I invited Harold, because I thought since Mr. Willoughby was in Texas, he must like houses and would want to build one, and Harold could design it for him. Everything will turn out beautifully. Don't you see? Oh, oh sure. I see. Now, look, there's just one chance. We've got to call off that picnic mob right away. They're the ones I'm afraid of. Anybody who's crazy enough to go on a picnic today, I don't trust. All right, dear, you call them. Anyway, the picnic people would never mix with the brunch people. Look, uh, you're taking this very lightly. Pam, just see if you can understand what I'm trying to tell you. Now, if anything happens and I lose that contract, I'll lose my job. Then we won't have any money, so there won't be any place to live. 
No roof over our heads, no clothes to wear. How would you like that? But, Jerry, that's what you've always wanted. What do you mean? No responsibilities. Harold and Ellen, it was all a mistake. Jerry's calling off the picnic right now, and we're going to have the brunch after all. We'll eat pretty soon. I hope you're not too hungry. Oh, no, uh... We had the peanuts brittle, didn't we, Ellen? Yes, it uh, was very filling. Now, Harold, I think we'd better talk about how you should handle Mr. Willoughby. I don't think you should start the conversation by mentioning houses. Sort of sneak into it. Uh, sneak into it? Yes, you see, Mr. Willoughby's a southerner, and you might talk about something that will make him feel at home, like cotton or hound dogs. Mrs. North, I don't know anything about cotton, and... But I never went hunting. Oh. Well, then try something else. Maybe Fort Sumter or Southern Fried Chicken. You're a smart hound. It'll come to you. Ellen, pass me some peanuts, Riddle. Well, my darling, get your fertile mind working again. You can wriggle out of this one. You'll get time and a half. Anything wrong, Jerry? Oh, not much. Only that your picnic friends don't answer their phones, and that probably means they'll be here any minute. Well, Einstein, what have you got to say? Neat little problem, isn't it? No, Jerry. It's not so difficult. I think I can handle it. Wait a minute. Don't look at me like that. But it's quite obvious, darling. You have to suddenly become very, very sick. Now, dear, you have to lie quietly or nobody will believe you're sick in bed. Stop squirming. Ellen, hand me that bandage, will you please? Here you are. Pam, at least tell me what's supposed to be wrong with you. No, I can't tell yet, dear, until I see how much bandage we have. Pam, in another minute, I'm going to explode. Jerry, Jerry, keep that expression. It looks just like the mumps. Oh, dear, I wonder who that is. Harold, you and Ellen better come with me and wait in the kitchen. Now, Jerry, do something. Get a temperature. We'll be right back. Well, where is the kitchen, Pam? Right through that door there at the left. Now, hurry. Okay, Pam, you can go right ahead. We're in. Oh, fine. Oh, Pierre de Bois. Hello, Pierre. Mrs. North, bonjour, bonjour. It is wonderful to see you again. May I kiss your hand? Kiss my hand? I don't think so, Pierre. I have some new nail polish on it and it may not agree with you. Uh, uh, come right in. Here we. By the way, Pierre, have you noticed the weather else? Oh, oui, it is getting nastier. But you are always right, Pamela, and you say the weather will clear. So what difference does it make? Oh, I see. Well, it's not only that, Pierre, but Jerry is very ill. Oh, man, no. But how terrible, what is the matter? Well, we don't know yet. The specialist and the surgeon haven't arrived. Oh, what this must have happened since you telephoned? What are the symptoms? Well, he's shaking on one side like he has a temperature and shivering on the other side like he has a chill. That's right, blue. What are you doing to relieve this? Temporarily hot and cold water bottle. Oh, but he must want his friends at this moment. I insist. I go to him. Oh, just a minute, Pierre. I'd better ask him first. I'll call into him. Oh, Jerry, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Pierre de Bois would like to see you. Yes, go. Oh, oh, oh. All right, Pierre. The doctor will be here soon. You see how it is, Pierre? Delirious. Well, uh, is there something I can do to help? Something? Yes, there is. You see, excitement would be very bad for Jerry right now. Huh? So if you'll go outside and wait in your car until the picnic crowd arrives, well, you can tell them how sorry we are, and they'll just all go away. Oh, naturally. I will do this immediately. Oh, thank you, Pierre. Thank you. I'll show you to the door. You can depend on me, Mrs. North. Well, I wonder who that is now. Wait a second, dear. Oh, Mr. Willoughby. How do you do, my dear? Of course you remember my wife, Mary Bell. Yes, of course. Nice to see you again, Mr. Willoughby. Won't you both come in? Oh, thank you. Thank you. 
And you think this Mr. Marconi is a tradesman? Why, that's absurd. It's Sunday, for one thing. No tradesman to wear such a perfectly tailored imported tweed. But that's what I thought. You don't stay here for. Well, maybe the custom is different up north here. Huh? Evidently, one's supposed to bring some food. Oh, I think you're right, my dear. Uh, what do we do about it? Uh, well, uh... Well, why don't we go out to quietly and come back with a car? Yeah, but I don't want to take a chance of losing Mr. Moscone. I, I want that recipe. If it measures up the expectations I want it for my book. Now, Jefferson, you'll be able to talk to him all afternoon. Now, let's go. I'll be happy opportunity. Well, ma'am, I'm all dressed now. Let's... Hey, Pam. Mr. Willoughby. What's Mr. Pam, where are you? Oh, Jerry, what's the matter? Hello, Mr. Norris. How's your headache, Mr. Norris? Never mind that. Where's Mr. Willoughby, Pam? Well, I left him and his wife right here in the living room just a second ago. Harold, Ellen, did you see them? Oh, no, Harold and I have been hiding in the kitchen. Pam, Pam, please try to remember. Did you do anything? Did you say anything that could have upset them? Think, Pam, concentrate. I don't know what to say, Jerry. Maybe they went for a walk. Walk? They probably walked out on us. What a wonderful surprise you planned. I was going to get the contract and Harold was going to design the house. But won't you be surprised tomorrow night when I come home and tell you I've been fired? Well, folks, I'm going to leave you at the fight. That's so very healthy. Uh, I'm going to take the wife and the kids to a farm in Indiana. So weeks for the cage. Uh, so long and thanks again for the brown sweet and smooth. <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Marconi. And thank you very much for everything. Now, this is the end. First, in the middle of a rainstorm, you start to arrange a picnic. Then you have to call off the picnic because you arranged the brunch. You give away my best suit, you drag Ellen and Harold down here from the Bronx, and finally I lose the best writer I ever hoped to get. Pam, I don't know why I married you. Jerry, you were in love with me. What makes you so sure? Well, it was before the draft, dear. <laughs> for over 15 minutes. The last of the Willoughby's, I guess. I don't feel too badly about it, Mr. North. I don't. That's right, Jerry. There are other writers. Maybe better than Mr. Willoughby. Oh, yeah? I'll buy all you can find. Oh, hey. Maybe they came back. I'll go, Mr. North. Hurry, Harry. Yeah, it must be, Willoughby. I've got one of my hunches. Oh, probably I've been sitting in the car for half an hour. Oh, you, some hunch. Jerry! You are all better. Oh, my friend, this is wonderful, merveilleux. That's pretty good. What's the trouble, Pierre? Something happened outside? Oh, but no, that is the trouble. Nothing at all happened. But now that you have recovered, Jerry, we can go on the picnic, yes? Yeah, you said it. Look, Pierre, yeah, you go uh, go and wait in the car, see? When that gang comes, bring him up in the body. Sure, we'll go on a picnic. Of course, we'll go out in the rain. What do we care? Come on, Pierre, I'll take you to the door. Jerry, Jerry, are you sure you're feeling all right? Oh, Jerry, my friend, I'm very glad to see you so happy. We'll have some fun, yes? Yes, I'll say we will. Pierre, Pierre, who do you see coming up the front steps? Why, your friends, monsieur and madame Willoughby. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Willoughby, what happened to you? We, we thought you'd left. Oh, no, Mr. North, but why aren't you in bed, sir? We thought you were seriously ill. Well, I never felt better. Just recovered. It was miraculous. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, forget what I just told you. You were Pam told you in the first place. Yeah, but, but, but why is this? I go, but I don't understand. I'm confused. But uh, yeah, I'll leave the door unlocked. Uh, when it's all over, you come back here.
glad you returned, Mr. Willoughby. Awfully glad. Well, my child, in honor of your brunch and to show our appreciation for your hospitality, we wanted to accept, accept this little pie. Why, Mr. Willoughby, isn't that sweet? Oh, thank you both so much. Oh, uh, by the way, here are two more friends of ours you haven't met. Ellen and Harold Adams. Oh, thank you. Harold is a wonderful architect. Designed houses, you know. You do need a new house in Texas, don't you, Mr. Willoughby? Well, frankly, we are going to build a new estate, but... I'm surprised. I thought Mrs. Willoughby and I were the only ones who knew that. For me. But I'll, uh, I'll talk to you about that uh, later on the day, young man. Oh, that'll be swell, Mr. Willoughby. Swell. Well, now, Mr. North, I've got some news for you. Yes? In return for that marvelous service you did for me today, I talked it over with my wife, and I decided to let your company handle my publishing exclusive. Really? Well, I, I don't know how to thank you, but uh, what's the service I did to you? Why, it was through you all I met your friend, Mr. Moscone. Now, if you'll bring him out, I, I'll take down that recipe. I want to test it out right away. It might be just what I've been looking for for so many years. Mr. Willoughby, uh, do you have to have it right now? I can't wait. This little book of mine's going to the printer in two days. Uh, where is Miss Marston? Well, he left and he won't be back for two weeks. What? Well, can't you catch him? Well, where did he go? Went to a farm in Indiana. That's all he told me. He told you? You mean to stand there and tell me you let him get away? I've never heard of a thing like that, my Mr. Willoughby, well, we didn't know you wanted the recipe right away. If you'd spend less time having tips and pay more attention to human welfare in general, you know those things. I know, but Come I... Come on, Maribel. I don't think these people are my friends. Wait a minute, Mr. Willoughby. Well? Oh, I just remembered. I've got the recipe. Mr. Moscone once gave it to me as a special favor, and I... Oh, the only thing is... Uh, what? I can't remember where I put it. Oh, Pam, can't you find it someplace? Well, don't you have any idea where it is? No, I haven't the faintest idea. Well, that's simple. I've never heard of such a crazy household in all my born days. Come on, Maribel. Let's get out of here. Well, yes, well, yes, and everybody's around downstairs, and they insist you have these pitmen. Oh, Pierre, go away. Go away? But they're all waiting. Herb says we haven't much time. Oh, oh, wait a second. Herb, time, time, Herb, darling, darling, that's where it is, the recipe. In my herb book, under time, spices, I've got it right here on the shelf. But well, this is no time to talk about recipes. Are we going on this picnic or not? They're waiting. Well, I don't know, Pierre. Mr. Willoughby doesn't like crowds. Well, nonsense. I want to try this recipe right away. I'm one of Mr. Moscone's fish. We love picnics, don't we, Maribel? Yes, Jefferson, I think we love it. Mr. Willoughby, here it is, the recipe. And I've got all the ingredients right here in the house. And if you don't think it's the best steak sauce you ever tasted, why, well, you will. Well, well, then everything is settled and we will have a wonderful time. Yes, no. And darling, look out the window. The sun is shining. I told you it would be a beautiful day. Remember? Yes, I remember. Uh, look, you all go down to the cars. I'll be along in just a minute. There's something I have to do. Well, uh, hurry up now. Don't take too long. No, no, no. Well, Hello, operator. Let me have the weather bureau. Hello, weather bureau. What are you planning for today? Fair and warmer? Very sunny? Would you recommend a picnic? Well, you would, huh? Well, why don't you guys make up your mind? <laughs> Be sure to tune in next week at the same time for another visit with Mr. and Mrs. North, starring Peggy Conklin. Original music for this program was under the direction of John Voorhees. This series is written and produced by Howard Harris and Martin Goss. Dan Seymour speaking and bidding you all good night.
the Columbia Broadcasting System. into the alley and waited. Pretty soon a side door opened and out came Helen. Just as I got to her, I heard a noise behind me. I started to turn around, but too late. A king-sized comet exploded over my right ear and the ground came up and hit me in the face. The New Adventures of Michael Shane, Private Detective. Michael Shane, reckless, red-headed Irishman, back again in his old haunts in New Orleans. This is your director, Bill Russo, inviting you to listen to another transcribed episode, which we call The Case of the Gray-Eyed Blonde. of all those travel folders on your desk, I'd say you were planning a trip. No, just taking a poor man's vacation. Reading travel folders? Well, probably almost as much fun as actually taking the trips. I doubt it. Is uh, something the matter? Matter? You've been looking at me sort of... Uh, I've never seen gray eyes like that before. Oh. Make quite a dent. Gray eyes, red lips. You uh, come to talk about trips? In a way, short ones. Oh, cigarette? Thanks. Well, I have a match. Thanks. Uh, trips? Yeah. You run errands, Mike? Errands? Depends what kind. Well, I made a mistake quite a while ago, Mike. Big mistake. I've been paying for it ever since. Regularly. Blackmail? Mm-hmm. One more payment, the account's closed for good. So? So, I want you to make that last payment for me. Tonight. Uh, just for my own information, Helen, you're not by any chance asking me I'm to... I'm not asking you to kill anyone, Mike. That's good to know. No, this is all on the up and up. Here are two envelopes. The instructions are in this one. Instructions? Yeah, where and how you're to meet the uh, man you're to meet. Uh-huh. When you do meet him, you hand him this other envelope. In return, he'll give you a small package. You bring that back to your office, I pick it up here. Uh... How would I go about getting in touch with you if anything went wrong? Well, I don't expect anything will, but in case of emergency, try my hotel. Madonna. Uh, you know, I just remembered a charge I might have to make in this particular case. Oh, what is it? It might be for you to have dinner with me or something. Dinner or something might be arranged, Mike. You'll take the job? Sure, why not? I'll pay you a hundred dollars. I'm sure you'll earn every penny of it. In a moment, we'll return to the new adventures of Michael Shane and the case of the gray-eyed blonde. 
something awfully compelling about them. Plus everything else about her, from her honey-colored hair to her alligator sling pumps. Plus, of course, the fact that I'd just gotten my license reinstated a couple of weeks before, and that hundred she was offering looked like a lot of good living for a change. So when she asked me to take the job of making a blackmail payment for her, I said yes. After she left, I opened the instruction envelope and read them over carefully. They were so thorough, I knew whoever this guy was, he wanted to be awfully sure he had the right party. I arrived at the indicated corner of Barrack Street ten minutes before midnight. Ten minutes early. The street was deserted except for a little red and white peanut wagon that a small olive-skinned gent was pushing down the street toward me. When he got to me, he stopped. A peanut, senor? Uh, no, thanks. They are fresh, senor. You're working kind of late, aren't you? Si, senor. These peanuts, senor, they are the best. Uh, tell me, you uh, seen anyone around here in the last ten minutes? A man? You are looking for someone? Yeah, in a way. Then perhaps while you're waiting or some peanuts. Uh, no, no, not now. Thanks. He gave me a very unhappy stare and then shrugged his shoulders and pushed his cart around the corner and out of sight. I started walking down the deserted street. My footsteps echoed on the pavement. It was darker than I thought it would be. No streetlights in this section. I kept trying to look over my shoulder, but I couldn't see anything. I knew that somewhere in that block, somebody was supposed to tap me on the shoulder, and I was wishing he'd hurry up and get it over. I was almost at the end of the block now. Still, nothing had happened. The building ahead of me on the corner was getting some work done on it. They had the front boarded up and had a boardwalk in place of the sidewalk. The street side of the boardwalk was boarded up, too. It was like a tunnel. I took a few steps into the pitch-black tunnel and stopped. Something started bothering me. For a moment, I couldn't figure out what it was, but then I got it. Somebody was in that boarded tunnel with me. Before I could do or say anything, a hand slid across my mouth, and I could feel the muzzle of an automatic against the side of my neck. Brilliant boy that I am, I got the idea that mum was a word. Then the hand left my mouth and slipped down and started going through my pockets. Pretty soon, it came to the envelope I was supposed to deliver. It patted the envelope and slipped it back into my pocket. Well, that I didn't get at all. Then the gun pressed a little harder onto my neck. I suddenly knew that his finger was tightening on the trigger. I dove for the ground, the gun went off. Red hot poker seared the top of my head, and then blackness. After what seemed like about a month, blackness started to fade. It faded still more, started turning to white. I knew I was in a hospital. Then I spotted some bars across the windows, and I got a strong hunch it was the receiving ward of the prison hospital. I tried to open my eyes more, which was pretty hard to do, because my head at this point felt like two little men were playing ping-pong with a hunk of hot lead. But I did manage to see someone bending over me. It was Police Inspector Lefevre. Not gonna die after all, hmm? What odds could I get? You were lucky. Just got creased. That's lucky, Looks like you had a little argument with your sidekick. Pretty one-sided argument. But look, Inspector, maybe you wouldn't mind telling me what this is all about, huh? That's funny, Shane. I was just going to ask you that. Huh? Mr. Graber, will you step in here now, please? Yes, Inspector? Mr. Graber, I want you to take a good look at this man. He the one? 
I can't be sure he might be. It might be what? Look, I'm the one that got shot in the head, if that's... Just what you... a minute, Shane. I'm going to tell you something you might possibly already know. At this point, what I know is just a drop in the bucket of what I don't know. Mr. Frank Graber here is a vice president of the South Atlantic Exporting Syndicate. Ever hear of him? Yeah, yeah, they shipped to Cuba, South America, lots of places. I did some work for them last year. Yeah, I know. What's that got to do with... Coming to that. Day before yesterday, there was an unusually large deposit to be made. So large that Mr. Graber here himself started out with it. Something like uh, 60000 wasn't it, Mr. Graber? 62000 in $1,000 bills. Yeah. Well, Mr. Graber never... Suppose you tell him what happened, Graber. Well, I went out the back door of the office building, and it wasn't until I opened my car door that I saw the man sitting inside. Had his hand up to the side of his face so that I couldn't get a clear look at it. But in the other hand was a gun. He forced me to drive down near the river, made me get out of the car and go into an abandoned warehouse. There he hit me over the head with his gun and took the money. That's too bad. But outside of welcoming you to the battered heads club, I still don't see that what... That guy could have been you, Shane. What do you mean? We found one of those thousand dollar bills in an envelope. In your pocket. Then a lot of things started making sense. Why that guy in the dark wanted to be sure the envelope was in my pocket before he tried to kill me. Yeah, it looked like somebody was very interested in having me found dead with some of that robbery dough on me. Thus getting me elected as chief suspect. But I knew it was going to be a tough story to sell the inspector. He ushered Graber out of the room and then came back and stood beside the bed slowly shaking his head. Oh, I don't get it, Shane. Not three weeks ago, you were telling everybody what a good boy you were going to be if you could just get your license back. So they give you your license back, so here you are, right in the middle of something that smells to high heaven. Look, Inspector, I'm going to give it to you straight. It was a frame. No sales, Shane. Believe me, it's the truth. A girl named Helen... Yeah. Oh, I know it sounds phony, but it happened. She gave me a song and dance about hiring me to make a blackmail payment for her. But what she really wanted, she and her boyfriend, I guess, was to have me found dead with some of this dough on me, thereby taking the heat off. I suppose you can back up your story by producing this girl. I can try. Still not buying. Look, Inspector, I've always cooperated with you. Yeah, well, that's the only reason I'm even listening to you. So now I need a break, a big one. You can give it to me. The only thing I can give you is time. And not much of that. How much? Well, my next way out. I know that. You're not exactly alone, though. Well, it's 7 a.m. I'll give you until 10 o'clock tonight. Huh? Tonight? Have a heart. That doesn't give me... I said 10 o'clock tonight. Make it midnight, then. 10. Okay, 10 o'clock tonight. And Shane. Yeah? That's it. One way or another. Funny thing about the inspector. He always meant just exactly what he said. So I had something like 15 hours to find one woman in a city as big as New Orleans... A beautiful woman with gray eyes who had almost done a very neat job of fitting me for a coffin. I lost two of those 15 hours getting part of my strength back and talking the doctor into giving me my pants. The only thing I had to go on was what Helen had told me about reaching her at the Hotel Donna. The desk clerk there remembered her just as soon as I mentioned the gray eyes. Oh, yes, sure. Let's see. Helen Collier she was registered under. Not bad. No, not bad at all. Uh, was registered? 
Yes, checked out first thing this morning. About six, I guess it was. No forwarding address, huh? No, asked her, but she said none. Well, thanks anyway. Might ask one of the cab drivers out front. Yeah, I'm going to. Thanks. Didn't take me long to find out that none of the three cab drivers in front of the Hotel Donna could have taken Helen, because none of them came on until seven. But I did get the address of the driver who worked nights there, and ten minutes later, I was pounding on his door. What do you want? Are you Joe, the cab driver? Yeah, why? You have a fare this morning about six? You woke me up to ask me that? Beat it. Hey, hey. Come on, Joe. Open up. Look at friend. I don't know who you are, and it's just the way I want to keep it. Now, suppose you... I'm not should... leaving until I get an answer from you. A girl about 5'4", gray eyes at the Hotel Donna. Where'd you take her? I don't know what you're talking about. Now, beat it. Get your foot out of the door. Okay, we'll go inside. Hey, 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 watch it. Now, look. The more you talk, the more I'm convinced you did take her somewhere. Now, open up. I've been through too much on account of that Look, I, tell you, I don't know what you're talking about. If you're trying to cover for her, you're making an awful big mistake, Joe. A mistake that could put you behind bars. Uh, she paid you to keep your mouth shut, huh? Okay, here's ten to open it. Look, from a friend. Be smart. Keep out of this deal. It's too late, Joe. Here's the ten. Open up. I got more than that for promise. Look, I... I haven't got all day and ten's all you get. Maybe that's too much. Maybe I could beat the answer out of you and save myself a tense uh, point. Now, which uh, is it going to be? Okay, okay. All right, now, you picked her up at the Hotel Donner at 6 this morning. Yeah. Where'd you take her? From a friend. Let me give you a tip. Don't hold your breath till you see her again. What do you mean? Where I took her was the airport. In a moment, we'll return to the new adventures of Michael Shane and the case of the gray-eyed blonde. started when a gray-eyed blonde named Helen hired me to make a blackmail payment for her. Only I found out too late it was a frame. I got shot in the head and woke up and found myself accused of a $62,000 robbery and was given just 15 hours by police inspector Lafifa to find Helen and clear myself. So far, all I'd found was she'd left the Hotel Donna at 6 that morning to go to the airport. Well, I was out there now talking to all the ticket clerks. Finally, I found one who remembered her. Oh, yes, uh, surely. Uh, those eyes of hers would be hard to forget. Well, which plane did she leave on, do you remember? Let's see, I... Uh, New York? No, that wasn't it. Oh, come uh, on, come on, try to remember. Now, wait a minute. Oh, I, I remember now. Don't tell me it's that plane that's taking off out there. No, she didn't leave at all. What? No, I bought a ticket to Havana. Midnight plane. Tonight. Well, at least I knew she was still in New Orleans. Of course, finding would be something else again. And then I got an idea, a long shot, maybe. But right now, the welcome mat was out for anything that would pass for a starting point. I went back to the Hotel Donna and over to the desk clerk. Yes? You uh, remember me? I was in here a couple of hours ago asking about that girl with... With the gray eyes, yes. You uh, really got it bad for her, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, but she hasn't come back, and I told you she didn't leave a forwarding address. Uh, I know. Look, uh, her room, has it been straightened up yet? Well, probably not. Cleaning girl's a little slow. We're thinking of letting her go at the uh, end. How about letting me in the room for a look around? Oh, now, wait a minute. Well, why not? You've got it bad for the girl, and that's tough. But we can't have you traipsing through that room looking for her forwarding address. It's, uh, <coughs> against the policy. Whose? Mine. Uh-huh. Okay, I'll make a deal. Deal? Yeah. 
Now, here's a five. Let's just say I'm engaging a room for a couple of hours as is. Oh, well, now, why didn't you say so in the first place? Here, I'll get the key. My only chance was that Helen wouldn't feel any reason to cover her tracks too carefully, since according to her plan, I was to have been long dead by now. I practically tore the room apart. Nothing. Then I thought of the wastebasket. There were two things in it. A piece of Kleenex with the imprint of a mouth and lipstick, and a torn half of a paper match folder. There was some printing on it. All I could make out were the first two letters, R-A, and below was the word cocktails. The name of a bar. And possibly, just possibly, a hangout of Helen's where she might be passing time and keeping undercover until that midnight plane to Havana. Oh, but which bar was it? How many of them started with R-A? My guess was quite a few... But it didn't matter how many. I had to try all of them. I went back to my office. That was a mistake. I dropped into my chair and propped my feet up on the desk. That was a big mistake. I figured I'd just rest a few minutes before I started out. That was a bigger mistake. Closed my eyes. That was my biggest mistake. When I opened my eyes again, I thought something had gone wrong with them. Everything was dark. Then I looked at my watch and almost went right up through the ceiling. Ten minutes to seven. I'd slept all afternoon. I had three hours left. I started out. The nearest bar on my list was a place with a quaint name of Rat Race. When I got there, things were already in high gear. I went in and then I knew how the place got its name. The music was tailgating loud. And it all came from five guys in the corner. A few couples were dancing, I guess you'd call it, on a floor about three sizes larger than a phone booth. And the bartender sat at the end of the bar near the musicians reading a paper. I had a tough time making myself heard. What'll it be, Mac? Uh, you happen to know a girl What's named... that? I say to you... Can't uh, hear you. A girl named Helen. Gray eyes, five feet four. Do you know her? Oh, yeah. Lots of girls around. I don't know. I don't think so. I suppose you've been asking too much to hit the jackpot on the first nickel. Uh, talk louder, will you? Oh, skip it. I threaded my way through the dancers and the smoke and went out. One down, eight to go. I checked the rat race off my list, went to a place called Rady's in a pretty seamy neighborhood. It was a lot darker than the rat race here and a lot quieter. Hospitable, too. I'd hardly gotten inside before a furnace-eyed brunette sidled up. Hello. Hello. You looking for someone? Yeah, yeah. Here I am. Uh, no, no. The girl I'm looking for is named Helen. Gray eyes. Helen, Helen. What's wrong with my eyes? They're brown. And eyes. Yeah, so I see like to dance. Have a drink. Hmm? <clears throat> Thanks, anyway. So I crossed off radies and kept going. And I kept drawing blanks. Rays, ravaccinis, radio room. And it got to be after nine, and I could practically feel the inspector's official and heavy hand on my shoulder. My head was throbbing again, and I was getting weaker by the minute. So I guess I was none too steady as I walked down the street. And then as I passed a little red and white peanut wagon parked at the curb, an olive-skinned little gent darted out in front of me. Hey, senor. Uh, oh, you again. Senor, is something wrong? You... Uh, no, no, I'm just tired. Uh, here, senor, have some of my nice peanuts. Nice, fresh peanuts. Oh, no, thanks. You kind of get around town, don't you? See, si, but, senor, they're the most delicious peanuts. They will help I don't you. want any peanuts, now. But I tell you, senor, they're fine peanuts. The best peanuts this side of Havana, senor. Can't you understand it? What about Havana? Senor, what have I done? What have I said to offend? Please don't let me go. What'd you say about Havana? Nothing, senor, nothing, nothing. It's just a place where I was born, senor. Havana, my home, that is all, senor. You know Please. anything about that midnight plane to Havana tonight? No, senor, I swear it. I know nothing about the midnight plane to Havana except I would like to be on it. Okay. Okay. 
I let go of him and he darted around to the other side of his wagon. I staggered on down the street. I still wasn't sure whether he'd been trying to tell me something or not. I didn't have time to figure it out. I had to keep going. Then I went to Raymond's, the next place on the list. It was a small place, no music. Only a couple of people at the bar, and the bartender was watching me very carefully. Hello. What can I do for you? You uh, happen to know a girl named Helen, gray eyes? No. Uh Uh-uh. I see. You you happen to have a light on you? Light? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I walked back to the door and went out. I was trying hard not to tremble. Because the trail had gotten hot, very hot. That bartender had been just a little too quick to say he didn't know Helen. If I needed any more proof, he'd given it to me. The matchbook he'd used to give me a light was the same kind as the fragment I was carrying in my pocket. Yeah, I knew I'd finally found the place. I went around the corner, eased into the alley and waited. Pretty soon a side door opened and out came Helen. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Well, hello, Mike. You really shouldn't have, you know. Found you? Mm Mm-hmm. Better look behind you. Oh, no. That's too old a gag to... In a moment, we'll be back with a thrilling climax to tonight's Michael Shane adventure. I guess the business of one thing canceling out another is true. That hit on the head sort of blotted out the throbbing of the wound. When I came to and found myself lying on the floor in a little room, my head was a lot better than I'd figured. Numb, I guess. I could hear voices. Two of them. Stupid things to do. I told you to And suddenly they began registering. I couldn't help it, Helen. I had to see you. Well, it's a good thing I did, too. Shane was almost ready to grab you when I hit him just now. It's all your fault anyway. Why didn't you finish the job last night when you had him on the board? I tried to. He's coming to. Yeah. Yeah, I've come to. So, trustworthy vice president, Mr. Frank Graber, is the big boy of the deal. Now, you shut up, Shane. You might get an argument as to who the brains really was, Mike, but it doesn't matter now. Pretty neat. Graber walks off with the money and tells the police a fairy tale about being robbed. Then the two of you nominate me for the fall guy. Graber's supposed to kill me, so I'll be found with some of the dough and therefore become the chief suspect. Only Graber misses. Figured it all out, didn't you, Mike? Well, Frank, I guess there's only one thing to do. Yes. And I knew what that one thing was. I knew I had to think fast and act fast to prevent that one thing from happening. If I could just divert their attention from me long enough for a dive at the window or door. And then I thought of something. Something that might possibly take their minds off me for just a second. Come on, Frank, get it over with. I, uh, I suppose you've told Graber about that plane ticket, Helen. What? Uh, to Havana on the midnight plane. What ticket? Why, he doesn't know what he's saying, No, no, Frank. no, wait. What ticket? Don't you see? He's just trying to upset you. You bought a ticket you... on the midnight plane to Havana. Frank, I didn't... You were going to run out on me. Oh, don't be You're silly. going to take all that money and run out on That's me. That's not true. I told you I wasn't. I guess I knew all along, Helen. Only I just wouldn't face it. But I guess I knew all along. What are you talking about? I knew. All the time you were telling me you loved me. How oh, we'd wait until the heat was off, and then I'd retire on account of ill health, and no, we'd take didn't... the money and go to South America and have a wonderful time. Frank, all I... the time you were telling me those things, what? I I knew you didn't mean them. I knew it. 
I wanted to believe it. I wanted you're to. you're all wrong. You kept I meant... working on me. You finally got me to do this thing. Because you were like a disease. Wait, you were in my blood. Not... Now you were going to run out on me. But I won't let you. No, Frank, that's not true. It's too bad. No. You won't get to use that ticket. Helen, my darling. Frank. Suddenly there was a gun in his hand. It was pointed at Helen. I could see she didn't believe it, but I did. I dove at him, and just as I hit him, the gun went... <laughs> Helen slowly sagged to the floor. I got hold of his wrist, but I was off balance, and he was bringing the gun slowly around toward me, and, and then, just as it got to me, I twisted as hard as I could, and we both went down, and the gun went off again. <gasps> then the gun dropped out of his hand. It just sort of crumpled over and lay still. I stared hard at the widening red stain on his coat, right over his heart. Well, I got a call through to the inspector right away, and he sort of took over from there. And that was just about that, with all the loose ends tied up one way or another. Oh, yeah, except one, that plane ticket to Havana, the one Helen had bought. Nobody seemed to know quite what to do with it. Because she'd bought it with her own money instead of the robbery dog. Of course, I had an idea what to do with it, but... Well, I gave it up after a while. <laughs> I, I guess the little peanut vendor needed it more than I did. Of course, I didn't just give it to him. It was strictly a business deal. Yeah, I traded him the ticket for his peanut wagon. So now, if the detective business ever gets too tough, well, I've always got a sideline. <laughs> director Bill Russo again. Our story is based on characters created by Brett Halliday. The music is composed and conducted by John Duffy, and Michael Shane is portrayed by Jeff Chandler. The New Adventures of Michael Shane is a Don W. Sharp production, transcribed in Hollywood and distributed exclusively by the Broadcasters Guild. Next week, you'll hear Michael Shane in another thrilling adventure from mysterious and colorful New Orleans. Music